go. You are listening to Law and Gospel on this last Open Mic Friday broadcast of Law and Gospel because 2019 is almost over and we're not here past Monday. We plan on being here on Monday or at least having a program, but right now it's Open Mic If you have any question, this is the time to ask. Your last opportunity during this 2019 in St. Louis, you just simply simply dial 821-0850. 821-0850. Anywhere in North America, including St. Louis, 1-800-730-2750. Two seven, and we'll be glad to take your call. We have some emails that came in that we want to take a look at, uh, particularly in light of this particular Open Mic Friday. Happy holidays. All is well. Please answer when you have time. And here's... Kind of interesting question. Those theologians that know the word, that is profound. They strive for clarity, enhancing understanding. Those who would like to seem profound strive for obscurity and a dense, heavy orthodoxy too burdensome for any believer to maintain once achieved. Is this a proper and true distinction to make about theologians? I actually, uh, in answer to that, had that experience last evening. I get a number of theological journals and documents, and they were doing a review on a book, and I started reading it, and it was about three columns long, And after I was finished reading it, I had no idea what the pastor was talking about. Yeah, he was talking about the book, but he was using language, etc., that left me in the dark. And I've got a number of degrees behind my name. I've taken 60 courses at the seminary since I left the seminary, and therefore... That was obscure, and perhaps I'm just not on that level of scholarship. There's no doubt that there is a difference between a pastor talking to a layman in an office and, say, a seminary professor going through the Greek and Hebrew grammatically, etc., unless you understand how to understand Greek and Hebrew, you may be lost in those classes. So sometimes scholarly papers leave me in the dark because I'm just unfamiliar with some of the verbiage that is being used. And that's a shame when that occurs in a congregation where, as this individual says, there's obscurity and a dense, heavy orthodoxy that's too burdensome for any believer to maintain once achieved. Now, the question goes on another paragraph. 
If so, namely if those are two different kinds of theologians, to those who are dense and heavy on the orthodoxy, supercilicously and intentionally come across as esoteric only because they are very familiar with the preconditioned echo chamber and audience to whom they speak. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, let me translate as I understand what that question is. Those who seem to be profound, they're probably talking to an audience that understands the profound verbiage that they are using and therefore they're quite comfortable in talking that way this is not the case with most congregational members i always have two goals in doing a sermon uh, number one i i choose a text that i've learned something from it in looking at it and therefore, I get excited about doing a sermon on it because I'm teaching also what I didn't know. Second of all, after that understanding of what the text is really referring to, we now make application of it. Now, let me give you a simple example. Jesus meets a rich man who asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And he goes away sorrowful. And Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Actually, the original language means how impossible it is. Now, if you read that without a proper understanding of theology, you will get the opinion that is really hard for rich people to be saved because money becomes such a temptation to them. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. And, and that's where the application comes in. After you help them to understand what Jesus is doing here. When the rich man asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Jesus' response was with what he would have to do in order to be saved, and that's to obey the commandments perfectly. But, of course, nobody can do that. And that's why Jesus says it's as hard for a rich man to do something in order to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, the disciples didn't understand this law and gospel Jesus was talking about because Jesus is making the point that no obedience to the law ever becomes sufficient in order to be saved. Therefore, they ask him, well, who then can be saved? Because they looked at rich people as really being blessed by God. Therefore, they must be in the right. They had a lot of flocks. Uh, they dressed well. They ate sumptuously. So, boy... But you see, with a wrong understanding of the text, you're going to have the wrong application. In fact, I've heard sermons that indicate what Jesus is saying here, we need to use our money to help out the poor, and then you'll have a place in heaven. Well, that's not true. There's nothing you can do to merit your way to heaven. Jesus is making a law gospel statement here. You want to do something to be saved? 
obey the commandments. So when the disciples ask him, if this rich man cannot be saved, who then can be saved? Jesus' answer is, with men, it is impossible. There's the point of this whole passage. It's impossible for anybody to do anything in order to be saved. The application, therefore, is for people in the pew who get worried about whether they're going to be saved because they realize they're such sinners. And if they're such sinners, they even confess in some liturgies that as poor, miserable sinners, they deserve nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. See, that's the purpose of the law. Preaching of the law is not just talking about the content of the law. It's applying the law to the people in the pew so they become scared to death that they may not go to heaven. But then Jesus adds the gospel. With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So the application, after a proper understanding of the text, is what is impossible for men is not impossible for God, who alone saves people. And how does he save them? He saves them by telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. He died upon the cross for your sins. And therefore, every sin you do is covered by the forgiveness of sins. And every good work that you omit to do is covered by the robe of righteousness that you have received through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe Jesus was one of those scholars or preachers who knew the word profoundly and he strived for clarity and enhanced the understanding of people. And he mainly did that by analogies. And the best analogies he used were his parables. Because a parable made sense to the people as to what profound theology meant. Okay, it looks like we've got a caller on the line right now, and I'm not sure the name. Who's this? You're on the air. Liz. Liz, go ahead. How you doing? I'm doing good. Have a question. Um, Yes, you should remain married to your husband. Yes, I should. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's not your question? Oh, okay. No, that's not my question. No, um... During this season, you've been talking with Pastor Reimnitz. I think that's his name. Wes Reimnitz, yes. Yes, okay. And on, uh, I think it was Wednesday. I don't remember the day, Wednesday or Thursday or or Tuesday. But you uh, mentioned in John 6, um, 30, uh, 30, 30, 30, okay, about um, they... uh, uh, well, so they said to him, then, what signs do you do? And they said to me, and they, and no, and that we may see and believe, okay? 
Yes. So you went through that Bible uh, verse, and you mentioned that um, these uh, people that were sitting at his feet uh, during the 5,000 feeding, that um, they heard his word and uh, and yet didn't uh, take it to heart, take it into digest it. Yes. And uh, so... Um, I'm, I'm just contemplating at this time of Christmas when we um, come together with families and uh, various uh, religions, and we come to Christmas Eve, and I don't know if all churches in the Missouri Center Church um, have Holy Communion, but um, I often wonder when um, you just said you're, they, you come to hear the message to tell them of the good news. So those that aren't of our belief in the Lutheran's confessions and our Lutheran teachings, um, and we um, bring our members that are not Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutherans, and we say we just allow them to come up to the table with us. Um, that help doesn't help me to understand that message of telling them the good news, if they, if those that know the good news as being Lutherans all their lives and have family members that are not of the of our faith, allow or can't or don't tell them, you know, this is, you know, you haven't been a part of our congregation for whatever time period, and. Uh, would the pastor allow those that are not of our faith to come to the table? And, and, and it would, for me, knowing who they are, it, make, it would make me stumble of, of being at the communion table with them at the communion table. Am I sinning for thinking in word, thought, and not deed, but in, in word and thought? That's my question. Okay. Theology is the art of making distinctions. And I make a distinction between those who are saved and then those who are permitted to come to the Lord's Supper. When I, when I talk to, uh, for example, Roman Catholics or Baptists, uh, I, I don't believe they are not saved. Uh, Roman Catholic teaching is Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Baptists talk about Jesus as our Savior. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, there is another qualification that one needs to have if one looks at 1 Corinthians 11, that there is an agreement on the teachings of that particular confessional community, namely the congregation. And if somebody is in disagreement with that, for example, um, I'll have somebody who is of a Baptist nature and they'll come and they'll say, are we able to commune today? Because they think if they believe in Jesus, they can commune. And I say, well, the scriptures make it clear that the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who agree on the doctrines of that particular congregation. And I said, our congregation believes in infant baptism, and we think it is a sin not to baptize your children. Do you agree with that? They say, oh, no, we don't believe in infant baptism. 
then I'll say to them, well, that's why you should not be communing at this table, not because I don't think you're a Christian, but because you are in disagreement with the teachings of the Lutheran Church in regard to what one needs to believe in order to take the Lord's Supper. So it's not a matter of how long they've been at the church or this kind of thing. Remember, we always have confirmation. I believe about one quarter of my congregation, I refuse to commune. You know why? And they, they were members. Not, they don't fully believe the total. No, they did. Okay. I, I don't have a clue. They were children. Yeah. I see. And they hadn't gone through confirmation where they begin to understand the purpose of the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? What are the benefits? And it's not, I I wouldn't dare say that any of those children aren't saved if they've been baptized. But confirmation is really important. In fact, at the churches I'm at now, I introduce uh, myself. I say, if you're at all interested, you're a visitor, uh, come and talk to me after the worship service. And we'll be glad to help you take you through a class of confirmation if you would so desire to join the congregation and receive the Holy Supper. Uh, a pastor who just gives the supper out to those who are not in agreement with what the church is teaching in that place, therefore, is like a doctor who gives you a jug of insulin and say, take it without any directions or anything. That that doctor would soon lose his license. Uh, in, Roman, in Roman Catholicism... I cannot commune in a Roman Catholic church because I don't agree with the teachings of Mariology, uh, purgatory, and other such factors. But I'm not going to say that Roman Catholics aren't Christians. I am going to say I can't commune there because I don't agree, agree with all of their doctrine. And so once you understand that in 1 Corinthians 11... Because people did not understand the Lord's Supper properly. Some of them were getting sick and some of them were falling asleep, which means they were Christians, but they died. And and that's part of what God says to warn us about communing people who are not prepared properly to receive the Lord's Supper. I like that definition, not prepared. That's all it is. Okay? I understand. Thank you very much, Pastor Tom. Okay, thank you very much. And that was uh, Liz from, uh, where where was she from, the Sahara Desert or someplace? Oh, Oh, Colorado, yes. Liz from Colorado. We only have a few minutes left. This is uh, our last Open Mic Friday on Law and Gospel. We intend to continue with it in 2020. In fact, I talked to both Mark Smith and to Wes Reimnitz that I would like them to continue Mark with the Tuesday hymns and uh, Wes with the Thursday rumination. He always seems to find a pretty good topic that people are speaking about. Now, during this Christmas season, 
there will be communion offered, if if not at the Christmas services, perhaps the Sunday before or the Sunday after. And that's to show that Christ has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And he's still a human being because we're going to be receiving his true body and true blood. But he's a different human being than he was when he was on earth. On earth, and we learn this in confirmation, he was in what Philippians talks about, the state of humiliation. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. Jesus suffered pain. Jesus died on the cross. Now is in his ascended state. None of that is happening to him as a human being. This is called his state of exaltation at the right hand of God, where he is in charge of everything. And that's really important to understand what Christmas is all about. When Jesus was born in the stable, he still was king over all things in the heavens. But once he ascended into heaven, once he had risen from the dead, his body had no longer any restrictions that most human beings have. And that's important to understand, that whatever you are experiencing was caused by Jesus. If not a direct cause... It was a willing cause. Remember, the book of Job is just really excellent to make a couple of points. That Job was tempted by Satan, but Satan had to have permission from God to do that. And I I think a lot of people misunderstand the book of Job because even God commends Job's language towards him in contrast to his three friends who says, obviously you've done something wrong and that's why God was punishing you. Job is an excellent book to recognize that even the innocent Christian suffers. And if he does suffer, God has a purpose behind it. And it's always a good purpose. Just like when Jesus came into the world, Herod wanted to cause him suffering by putting him to death. But the angel told Joseph to flee to Egypt where they remained until Herod had died. Nothing happens in your life that God in the person of Jesus Christ is not aware of. And what happened to Job is during this procedure of pain and suffering and death of loved ones, he came to a far greater faith in God than he had before. He even mentions it. He said, I used to know about you by rumors, what I heard by the ear. But now that you have spoken to me, I have seen you face to face. So when you attend your... Christmas, moving into Epiphany services, listen to what is being said. What is the instruction? Because a proper preacher will be instructing by repeating what God has to say. And we hope to do something like that 
on Monday when we'll be having our last 2019 Law and Gospel broadcast uh, looking ahead to the future. And that future, of course, will be all about what we're going to be doing in 2019. Uh, 2020, excuse me. So, Merry Christmas. Blessed New Year. We will be back either on the day of Epiphany or the day after. Till then, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542.